0: Everyone has a story, different needs, wants, and goals, and how to attain them. Your story determines your solution. Whatever your situation and story, locum tenants should be a part of the conversation. How do you find out if locum tenants is a good option for you? Go to an unbiased, informative source like locumstory.com. You'll learn all the ins and outs of locums, details on travel and housing, assignment coordination, tax information, and more. You'll also hear first-hand stories from locums physicians from all walks of life, so you get a bigger picture of the diverse options. Get a comprehensive view of locums and decide if it's right for you at locumstory.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Neil Ortho podcast. My name is Dr. Cole. Myself and Dr. Fitz started this podcast to go over high-yield orthopedic surgery topics, but you are now tuned into our Citation Classics, and more specifically, you are tuned into our Trauma Citation Classics, where actually this episode, our trauma team is going to be going over hip fractures. And they're going to educate you all and teach you all a little bit about it. And uh, this was really a truly great episode. Uh, So without further ado, let's go ahead and hop into today's episode.
1: You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast. Hello and welcome back to another Citations Classics here with the the trauma folks, the trauma dogs. Got myself, Matt, and we got Bree and Nick with us again today. Hey, hey guys. Hey, guys. Hey, everyone. Yeah. We're, we're fired. We're back from, uh, we're in the new year now. Uh, it's, it's still very cold. It's actually snowing outside. It was like getting warmer and that got a lot colder. But, but we're, you know, the cold weather's just even more time to dive into the literature and talk about these great citation classics. So, so you're lucky. We're, we're here. We're going to talk about, we're moving on to the hip fractures from the, from the pelvis and acetabulum that we've been talking about in the past couple of weeks. And we're, we're going talk about hip. Fractures in general today, kind of counseling patients. What are important papers that go into counseling patients or, or help inform how we counsel patients? And so you can see if you look at the slides, we have hip fractures. The quote is, Would all I be able to go home, doctor? I'll, I'll be just fine, right? And uh, I think we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit and uh, we'll talk a little bit more about they might be able to expect so before we we go into it i want to present a, a patient a little scenario for everyone that will be kind of using to frame our narrative today and so, so nick and brie we were talking about a little bit earlier so we we've got a, a sweet sweet grandma lives lives at bone by herself she's able to shop for herself she goes out you need the emulator she uses a cane but gets around does everything for herself really really well and, and last night she was having a good time she drank a started drinking a bottle of wine she was going back to the the kitchen to rinse her cup when she oh, she tripped over her cat, fell, landed on her hip when she comes into the emergency department. The whole family's there, they, including the cat. Somehow they snuck it in. Everyone's there. The cat even looks concerned. Everyone's gathered around grandma. You walk in to see the consult and you walk in and, and the whole family's like, is she going to die? When is she going to die? Is she going home? We'd love her to make it go home. How do we make her better? We hate surgery. Can we just wait for it to heal? And you're just hit by a bombardment, of all these different questions. You take a step back and you know you want to make sure that you're you're counseling them really well you want to make sure that you're, you're using science and data to really make sure that we're making the best decisions for, for their for their loving grandma so that cat has someone to, to come home and take care of it again and and so that's what we're gonna be covering today kind of what goes into what what your spiel can be when when talking with a hip fracture patient when discussing a hip fracture patient and then the things to consider when we're we're planning on when and how to do surgery. We'll, we'll be unpacking this more kind of surgical strategy a little bit more uh, as we as we go into hip fracture specifically later episodes. So first off, I, I'm sorry to keep hitting you guys with all these disclaimers. I know last time we were talking about uh, pelvises, I was talking about you know hey I'm a I'm a, I'm a third year uh, resident, so I'm definitely still learning the mysteries of the human pelvis. But a full disclaimers, I'm more con- I'm more confident in the mysteries of the human pelvis that I am necessarily in in unpacking statistical in that analyzation. I I don't have a strong statistics background. I very much during journal clubs, I'm listening very intently to folks that are much smarter than me uh, talking about the the different ways to analyze data and the different confounders and all that. And so I'm definitely very much learning all of this as well. I really rely on editors as well as different uh, organizations that kind of unpack some of this. And so when we were identifying papers that that, that we wanted to talk about today, one, we want to make sure that they're they're highly cited because as these are citation classics, well, then also the Orthopedic Trial Association that we talked about has an evidence-based medicine a section on their website that we really use to, to identify some of these great papers and can really try to, to trust that. And then you also want to make sure you're you're not just blindly trusting we we like can we take a look and make sure do these conclusions that are being made do they make sense do does uh the thing that we're investigating make sense and this is just providing us a little bit of extra information or 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 strong data to support makes sense and has giving us a little bit of a stronger recommendation. It, I just also want to say if you see important aspects of these papers that should be considered, please let us know in the comments or shoot us an email. Those of you who are listening that have a, a stronger background of this, take a look, dive into this, and, and let us know. Um, but overall, we're, we're looking at some well powered reviews that have been completed, looking at hip fractures that have really moved the needle as far as timeline when we try to get to these fractures. They're important to remember when we counsel our patients' recovery. It's always it's always good to know understand where some of the numbers that we quote to our patients come from and that's kinda of what we're gonna be looking at today. All right. So with that, let's go ahead and move forward and we got a background. Uh Bree, real quick, what what is a hip fracture? Like what what bones are we talking about here?
2: Yeah. So when we're talking about to the patient about this type of injury, it's important that they actually understand what's going on. They're really simplifying it down to the hip joint is a ball and socket joint. So telling them, think about the big bone in your thigh, the femur. So it's the ball of that. And that's forming a joint with the part of our pelvis called the acetabulum. And that's really what our ball and socket joint is.
1: Perfect. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. No, sorry, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead.
2: Um, and then it just talking about the fracture type, which I think mm. Nick was going to go into.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so Nick you, and, and Bree nailed it, right? A hip, you got to break it down for our patients. It's the ball and socket joint. We're talking about the ball side of that that joint. Uh, it's not an acetabular fracture, which would be the socket. It's the ball side, that, that proximal beamer, the top part of that long bone. And and so yeah, Nick, so we're, when we're talking about, I like, guess, orthopedists, when we're thinking about hip fractures, what kind of is included in, in hip fracture? What's in that basket? Right. So a lot of times when we when we say hip fractures, we're going to talk about the uh, femoral neck, so
3: our, our subcapital or transcervical and baby cervical femoral neck fractures we also refer to hip fractures a lot of time Intertrochanteric fracture the area between the greater tro- for
1: sure yeah perfect nailed it yeah see what i did there nailed it so yeah and we'll talk about specifics of treatment of kind of each of those individual things later but this is a this we're talking about the big basket of, of hip fractures those femoral neck fractures and the different subtypes that you talked about as well as the intertrochanteric fractures and we'll talk about you know standard ubiquity, reverse ubiquity at a, at a later, later time, later episode. That's another show. And just to point to highlight, that, like subtrope fractures, the, those kind of things, those are, we're not talking about those. Those are more uh, kind of a, a different beast. So we're talking about those femoral neck fractures and intertrochanteric. And just like any surgery, and particularly in this surgery, which we'll see is our goal is to restore function, to improve pain and prevent complications. This is primarily achieved by early mobilization, getting people moving. And you'll see we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go. So let's, let's, let's keep it a go. I, we're going to be zipping through a couple of these, these early ones. You guys are going to hear me talk a lot at the beginning, and then we'll be kicking it over to, to and Nick. So our first paper is a 2000 paper 2019 paper out of the journal of orthopedic trauma I'm talking about non-operative geriatric hip fracture treatment is associated with increased mortality, a matched cohort study, and at first glance, you look at this and you're like, well, duh, but it is important to look at these things to really define some of the, some of the frequencies to know more about what the trends are. And when we are talking with our patients and to really, you know, you, you got to prove some of the, the basic stuff as well and really talk about the basic stuff to have a true understanding of the rates of these things. So the retrospective cohort study, they did a matched cohort, a matched operative cohort to a non-operative cohort. Important to always talk about what that means. And so a non-operative cohort they did, they used oral medications and cryotherapy for pain medication. The and how people were selected for non-operative cohort, right so it's is a retrospective and so it was these patients were only treated not operatively when it was requested by the patient or the family this was done in consultation with a palliative care team as well as the internal internal medicine team in order to to talk about hey do you do you understand the implications of of non-operative treatment, which we'll go into what those are, but we even knew that in 2019, we already had an idea of what non-operative treatment, but they wanted to make sure that they talked. And then, so uh, that, that's always going to be a little bit of a, a tricky thing to try to match for is these patients are are choosing, these, these you know, you have that selection bias. Well, they did a, a matched operative cohort and, and the operative treatment could be anything from arthroplasty to cannulated screws to a sliding hip screw or a cephamedullary nail, right? Things that we use to treat those femoral neck fractures and and, uh, and intertrochanteric fractures. Some interesting points about this is most of the femoral neck fractures were treated with arthroplasty, specifically hemiarthroplasty, and most of the intertrochs were treated with a sliding hip screw rather than a submuscular nail. That's up to eighty-six percent of those intertrochanteric fractures were treated with sliding hip screw, and we'll go into like why that why that's interesting in a a later episode. But just important to kind of keep in mind, you know, lots of different fracture patterns and lots of different interventions treated to treat this. So they matched Sorry. So they they matched operative cohort to a non-operative cohort. This the non-operative cohort or, or the people that we're looking at are geriatric patients 65 years of age older with a femoral neck fracture or an inner drug fracture that went operative or non-operative treatment the main outcome that they were looking at was mortality They looked at that in hospital mortality 30 maybe 30 day mortality in one year mortality. so ultimately they looked at all femur fractures between 2004 and 2012 there was over a thousand patients over a thousand uh, 1,036 were operative and 77 were not operative. They looked at all possible confounders and tried to match for that. And these were risk factors that have previously been associated with mortality and hip fractures. And so these are important things to know just in general as orthopedists, right? Risk factors associated with mortality and hip fractures, age, sex, fracture location, the Charleston Comorbidity Index, basically looking at a n- number of, of different comorbidities, pre-injury living location, dementia, and cardiac arrhythmia. Ultimately, you know, they're doing a matched cohort. So they had 77 non-operative. They did two to one matching and they did matching without replacement. And that resulted in a total of 154 operative patients and 77 non-operative. And you can see we have uh, one of the uh, the tables just talking about the, the patient selection and the entire cohort, the non-operative and the operative, kind of the breakdowns of that. And basically it shows that there's no significant difference between our operative and non-operative cohorts, so we feel pretty good about the matching that was done. I pulled up here just for those of you who really like statistics or know, know a lot more about statistics, they did a Kaplan-Meier survival analysis for mean and median life expectancy. They did Shapiro-Wilk test for distribution of continuous variables. They did student T test for parametric data, which is data that's typically, that falls in a normal distribution of a bell curve. They also did the Mann-Whitney Mann-Whitney test for non parametric data, which is data that's not in a normal bell curve distribution. Chi-squared test, which look at the differences in data as well as the log rank test to look at the differences in curves so they, they did a lot of statistical analysis on this stuff and as you'd expect on our, on our results the mortality is a lot higher in the non-operative group than the operative group at, at all of our time points in our in-hospital we have non-operative mortality of 30 percent operative 3.9 30 day 63 percent non-operative 11 percent and operative so basically it boils down to at a year 84 percent of non-operative patients uh, an 84% mortality rate, rate, where in the operative, 36% mortality rate. The one interesting thing is that the actually the length of stay, the hospital length of stay was lower in the non-operative group than the operative group. That might be a little bit different, but if you think about, one, they had one outlier in the operative group with, that stayed for 146 days that pushed the the length of stay average up by an entire day. then also, a lot of times, if someone's, if they're not, they weren't having a, a discharge planning immediately on, on a presentation in the operative group, it only started after the operative intervention. And so that kind of creates a little bit of lag time, but mortality is certainly higher in the non-operative group and significantly higher, like significantly, significantly higher. So what's the conclusion? We have a one-year mortality rate and 80, 86% in the non-operative group. However, I like to highlight from this that we get some good data, even with the operative treatment, there was 36% mortality, it, like not just something that's... It, uh, a fracture that we take, take in isolation it kind of be as an indication of the overlying status of the patient. Important to note, this 36% mortality at one year, this was a matched cohort of, you know, people who underwent non-operative treatment that are pretty unhealthy or kind of at the end of life. And so they actually did find that the Charleston comorbidity index was lower in their unmatched patients or their healthier patients. And so we could expect that maybe the the mortality rate at one year for operative treatment overall as a group is a little bit less than that. I think an important limitation of the study is once again, that's that self-selection of patients to not opt. They did, they did look at pre-injury ambulation. They had no difference in the mortality rate. The not, to highlight again, the non-operative management did not mean longer stay, but the operative treatment was better for mortality at all time points. And so it's an important discussion we had with patients. So, so based with this, Brie, so based on this, we have our patient, she came in, the cat's there, the cat's meowing, running around, but, but you know, the family's like, hey, if we could, we don't like surgery, but we want to get her back uh, moving around back living at home. Can we do non-operative treatment? What, what would you tell these things?
2: So essentially what I'd want to discuss with Uh, this family is that what we do when we care for a patient is we have an entire team of people working together to uh, essentially look at whatever their medical comorbidities are and their mobility is at baseline in addition to thinking about what type of fracture the patient has. And what we do is essentially help the patient get back to their baseline through the use of the internal medicine team, physical therapy, and the orthopedic Team in order to figure out what interventions that patient really needs in order to really reduce their pain and, like you said before, increase their function and get them back to a point they're happy and healthy and the patient scenario you had. She was living alone, so if that's her goal to get back to that baseline, it's really important that we optimize her outcomes by bringing her into surgery and thinking about what her medical history is in order to figure out what the correct timing would be for that. But really, we want to have the patient be an active participant within that team in order to figure out what is best for them.
1: Yeah, for sure. And you brought up a lot of really good stuff that we're we're going to be diving into over the, over the course of this. But yeah, like it's really it comes down to you know if you want a chance at, at getting back and and to y- y- we got to be talking about surgery like um these are these are folks that if you don't get surgery you're not moving around you're not going to do well and, and we can talk about the reasons why not treatment doesn't do better but people aren't able to get up and mobilize and if you're not able to mobilize you know you life's about momentum if we're not able to get up and move around our body starts kind of failing us a little bit more a little bit more and these people are coming in with with uh comorbidities there's a reason why they fell there's a reason why they fractured and so if we we give those other reasons a, a head start or a boost by not moving around the patient and or of a sudden they're starting to get ulcers they're starting to get pneumonia, they're starting to get other other different things because they're not moving around that's certainly going to hasten the end of life so if we're this is already kind of part of the end of life process but if we want to try to stave that off and get them back as much as possible we, we got to be talking about surgery okay good Good. Let's, let's, let's through another one real quick. We've got uh, the impact of a co-managed geriatric fracture center on short-term hip fracture outcomes. This is in the archives of internal medicine in October, 2009, but you didn't hear that Think We were going to be talking about internal medicine papers in here, but uh, it's, it's important to know what our colleagues are talking about and if they ever want to not admit a patient, be able to use their, their data to, to help our cause. But this is really going to be talking about like Re was talking about that, that the importance of that co-management team and, and the whole team, including the patient. Uh, moving forward, but we'll take a look exactly what this paper talks about. It's October 2009, Archives of Internal Medicine. So, the background kind of we're talking about patients with hip fractures have comorbid comorbid conditions, and in order to address that, this uh, center, this is a, termed a geriatric fracture care center. They evolved a, a treatment approach that assumed a couple different things, and they built a team around that. One, they assumed that most benefit, patients benefit from surgery. Yep, yeah, we talked about that last. Shorter time to surgery is less time to develop uh, iatrogenic illnesses. We'll talk about that in future papers here coming up, but, but yes, agree with that. Uh, co-management with frequent communication avoids iatrogenic problems. That's a, that's a big one. So that's what we're going to talk about here is kind of really examining that and see if that bears out. And some data, that co-management with frequent communication avoids biatrogenic problems. Standardized protocols decrease adverse outcomes. That's kind of held true across uh, many different platforms from the military to, to medicine. So that makes sense. And then discharge planning begins at admission. That makes sense. That can definitely decrease our length of stay, get people out a little bit sooner, find a better place for them. So they were comparing between two hospitals and we'll go into a little bit more, but the Geriatric Fractured Care Center focused on those five things that we talked about. They had subspecialty consultations were minimized, and they're being managed by a geriatrician as well as an orthopedist. It's based in a 261-bed community-based teaching hospital that has actually a close affiliation with local assisted living facilities and nursing homes. Uh, and so they get a lot of geriatric hip fractures as covered com- this was all compared to a usual care hospital which was a tertiary care hospital kind of what you think of as these uh, an academic center overall the two hospitals shared house staff as well as medical students and faculty they have a similar in catchment area they're very next near each other one being a tertiary uh, center and one more of a a smaller community-based hospital uh, an important thing to notice to talk about is they didn't have any overlap in staff but the staff belongs to the same apartment so overall treatment trends very similar but uh, they were not operating at both hospitals. They had different staff operating. So the study design is a retrospective cohort study. It was done from 2005 to 2006. They looked at the Charleston Comorbidity Index in order to kind of help control for some of these things. They looked at dementia in their analysis they, it was identified as a difference between the sites. And so it was included as a covariate in order to prevent that from causing undue skewing of the data. Uh, and once again, it was done at two separate institutions. They looked at couple different outcomes. One is time of surgery, two is complications, which they define the complications specific parameters in the paper if you wanna take a look. They looked at restraint use, length of stay, mortality and readmission within 30 days. They analyzed this all with chi-square tests, Fisher tests, unpaired t test linear and logistic regressions in order to take a look at everything. So overall the population, they had uh, included folks with 60 years old or an older with proximal femur fracture, which we talked about the fracture patterns before. Then they had 193 at the geriatric fracture center and 121 at the local institution without the program at the tertiary care center. And I put the characteristics of the patients at the baseline. It's really interesting if you take a look at the geriatric fracture care center, the age, is significantly higher the those who are community dwelling or more independent ambulators is lower so you know there were more people at assisted living facilities and nursing homes that went to the geriatric fracture care center the charleston comorbidity score was on average higher at the geriatric fracture center and the dementia percentage was higher once again and so taking a look at this and you you'd suspect that you know the the geriatric fractured care center has a little bit of an uphill battle to do here in order to to really take care of their patients so then we look at the results and so looking at the results the outcome we see that at the geriatric fracture care center the time to surgery was significantly less in hours 24 hours as compared to, to 37. restraint use was lower length of stay was lower complications overall was lower 30 percent as compared to 46 percent and and that it, and that was uh, all of those things are are significant. There's significantly less delirium, so significantly less postoperative infection, which includes urinary tract infection, pneumonia, and surgical surgical site infection, kind of lumped together, and then significantly less cardiac or hypoxia complications. And so, even with that kind of uphill battle, the fracture care center with this this team-based model performed better. And So that's that's pretty pretty strong. We see in conclusion, that patients got to surgery faster they had less complications they had a shorter length of stay and i put an important note is it's not just including a geriatrician and orthopedist together this is also they had standardized order sets includes nursing staff those familiar with taking care of elderly patients physical therapy team that is used to doing uh, hip fracture recovery. So it's a reflective of a total approach to patient care and you don't just add in a, a internal medicine consult or asking internal medicine to be primary. This is a whole process that this was that was instituted and it's really important for the total to care and you can see it makes a big difference. And so taking a look at that, Nick, I kind of rambled on a, a little bit there talking about all this, but when talking with the patient now, when you're when you're talking with the patient and family, you're talking about who's going to be taking care of them and and what the, the post op course might be like. What what might this kind of bring up, or you want to make sure you, you bring up and talk about?
3: Right. So, we definitely want to include that hey, we're going to have a whole team of people, you know, physical therapy, like you said, nursing staff. And the more people we have on board, there's evidence that'll demonstrate the uh, the better our outcomes could potentially be. Like you said, faster surgery, shorter length of stay. They'll probably be transferred to like the orthopedic floor if, if the hospital has uh, that sort of capacity where people, you know, the staff is, is used to taking care of these kinds of fractures. And they'll likely get better care there. They're likely going to have a holistic team that
1: that will be participating in the uh, entire care of the patient and their comorbidities. Nice. Yeah. Perfect. Like right. Like. We just highlight hey it's important that we take a whole uh, look at all of you and make sure that we're we're helping you as much as we can take into account all the things that make you you including your medical history and your home situation and your your strength and ability and so we want a whole team to be able to look at all those things help optimize all of those things uh, and work with you and the most important part of this is you right is work is you're being able to work with physical therapy you working with all these different teams to make sure that we're considering everything but yeah really highlight like hey we're gonna have a lot of people working with you we're all talking with each other while working with you and it's all to make sure we're doing the right thing at the right time but yeah so it, and and surprise when you think about all those things and you you really put together a team that's going to help support a patient that we we see we see better outcomes and that and that's fantastic and and makes me kind of curious if maybe we could do some of these things about uh some of our other subspecialties i think you know actually the joints literature right a a standardized approach to our joints patients has has improved our ability to get people moving and everything again and so it is something that we see across the board particularly in in hip fractures where it's really important because we're talking about a risk for mortality right like that is that's the that's the ultimate uh, big big endpoint. all right so kind of getting into now talking about timing of surgery. And we'll have uh, two papers that talk about this. So we're going to start off with a a 2010 paper at the Canadian Medical Journal, uh, Canadian Medical Association Journal, 2010. The effect of early surgery after hip fracture on mortality and complications, systematic review and meta-analysis. And this is a, a, a big paper that was very rigorously done they, they really took their time and they, they had pretty strict inclusion criteria. They had studies with 60 patients who are 60 years or older. They had a low energy hip fracture. They had evaluation of uh, discussion of preoperative surgical delay. They looked at all cause mortality. I think a big thing here is they looked at everything that was in a prospective design. They did not look at any re- retrospective studies. And They also looked at no language restriction in order to help increase the, the strength of the, the patient in catchment for that the main outcome measurements always really important to identify what were the papers looking at and they looked at mortality so taking a look at their population the population they they identified almost two thousand papers they excluded a ton based on you know like letters case reports all that i think when we're doing these meta-analysis it's easy to kind of skip over that flow chart that talks about articles identified by initial search to get down to the ones that are included in the systematic review, but it is important to take a look at what they, uh, what they were looking at, how they decided not to look at different things, because that's what, you know, they might be missing out on some different things, or they might be, you know, not taking some things into account. But they did, I mean, they did a studies on Medline and Base in order to find all these. They looked at the, they physically went through the archives of the OTA, COA, MAOA, AALS, ABJS, uh, the Piedmont Society, and they to make sure that they weren't missing any unpublished data they they contacted all these people they did a huge amount of work in order to make sure that they were in catching all of the the uh, appropriate information and studies and so when they looked at that they also then looked at the quality they used an adapted version of the newcastle ottawa scale for cohort studies Basically, it assesses for a selection and attrition bias. The grades are based on selection and applicability of the study groups. And they looked at if the ascertainment of the exposure or the outcome was biased, as well as the adequacy of follow-up. The Newcastle-Ottawa scale also looked at the outcome, if the outcome is to make sure that the outcome is not demonstrated at the beginning of the study, which they discarded for the study, because wait, right, the outcome's death. And so, obviously, it's not demonstrated at the beginning of the study. So they this resulted in a score from 0 to 8. Uh, they looked at papers that scored a 7 or higher as high-quality, five to six or moderate quality and anything like less than four was low quality. They also did the Kappa statistic to confirm agreement when looking at these uh, studies as far as what their score was. And it was set at uh, 0.65. So, singularly, they did a primary meta-analysis, which studies that were adjusted for potentially confounding variables were included. They did a secondary meta-analysis, which they looked at studies with unadjusted uh, estimation of mortality. It was basically a long way to talk about they looked at relative risk. They took all of these different studies, and if they had, if they reported frequency data, they converted it to relative risk. If they had odd ratios or had ratios, they converted it to relative risk. They looked at relative risk at 30 days, six months, and one year. They pooled out outcome measures. They did funnel plots for publication bias. They did T squared, or sorry, I squared for heterogeneity, quantification, stratified analysis, statistical tests or interactions. They controlled for inflation of type one error with p less than 0.01. They did a ton of very rigorous statistical methods. I talked to someone who uh, in in my program who has a little bit more statistical background than I, and they were they were they were impressed with the 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 rigor that they did with this. And I think this is why it's included as a strong thing for our in the OTA EBM uh, database. Why we can really trust this study. They were able to, to identify four high quality studies, five moderate studies and seven low quality studies. And I have the two forest plots up here taking a look at mortality and looking at complication. And so here you're looking at early surgery versus delayed surgery. They, they have on the left all the different studies and some studies use 24 hours, but most of them use 24 hours. Some studies use 48 hours. And so one study actually uses 72 hours as the cutoff for early versus delayed. And that can definitely lead to a little bit of uh, confounding or difficulty in, in interpreting these results. But what we can see on these forest plots is there's a certainly a trend towards uh, improved mortality at 30 days, three months, six months. But there is stati- statistically significant improvement in mortality at one year for operative treatment, early surgery versus delayed surgery. And so I just want to say that again to highlight at one year we see a statistical improvement in favoring early surgery as compared to delay surgery in mortality so now we just got to define a little bit more of what early surgery is and primarily most of these surgeries talk about 24 hours but also some use 48 and some use 72 so a little bit of gray area there but but early surgery better than delayed surgery in mortality benefit at one year with a trend towards that at three months, six months, and 30 days. Then we take a look at complication, and by complication we see they looked at pneumonia, pressure sores, DVTs, and pulmonary embolism. We see stati- statistically significant early surgery improves or, or reduces pneumonia and reduces pressure sores, but not statistically uh, addressing um deep vein thrombosis or pulmonary embolism basically pneumonia and pressure sores are helped by early surgery so to break that down i know there's a lot of talking a lot of talking about a lot of talking about statistics which is really hard over over uh, a podcast or, or listening but we have early surgical treatment is associated with significant reduction in mortality boom that's our big plan our, our big our big overwhelming statement but we know that at 24 hours 48 hours and 72 hour time points were all used in the literature and so that like ah, but but when? What is early surgical treatment? A little bit of work left to be done. We say that the reduced risk of pneumonia and pressure sores. I think highlights of this study. It's a prospective meta-analysis. That's pretty excellent, but it's still limited as it's a, an observational study, and, and confounding is a definite consideration. But but I think overall, a really powerful uh, tool when we're talking about early surgical treatment. Rather than go ahead and ask some questions again right now, I think let's go ahead and dive into to Breeze study where we talked about. And we, we've been talking about, okay, what is early surgical treatment, 24, 48, 72? And I think Bree can shed some light on that.
2: Hey, guys. So continuing off on that. So what is early surgery? So uh, Dr. Pincus and his colleagues tried to address this in their 2017 article published in JAMA. So they were essentially looking at the association between wait time. So what is that ideal time for surgery and 30-day mortality rates in adults going in? undergoing hip surgery. So when we're talking about hip fracture surgery in adults, there's really been a variable time surgery policy and recommendation based on whatever country of origin the surgeon is in. So for example, in the US and Canada, the guidelines recommended within 48 hours of presentation, but conversely in the UK, um, that recommendation was actually within 36 hours of presentation so there's really been kind of a lack of empiric evidence for that time to surgery threshold and that's what these authors were trying to address and figuring out what is that time to surgery threshold before the risk of complications increases so for their study design they used a population-based cohort study in ontario canada um, and they used their health administration health administrative databases within 72 hospitals within ontario canada to essentially find residents that were over the age of 45 who were undergoing hip fracture surgery within a five-year period from April 1st, 2009 to March 31st, 2014. And they had a lot of different exclusion criteria, but just kind of a summary of them were if the patient had a history of hip fracture surgery before, if they incurred a hip fracture during their hospitalization, there was significant surgical delay over 10 days, or if their surgery was performed by a non-orthopedic surgeon or at a facility with a low volume of hip fracture fixation. But their primary outcome for this study uh, was really looking at that 30-day mortality to establish an appropriate wait time for surgery using kind of a continuous time frame in hours from their initial arrival at the emergency department until their surgery. And then they also looked at secondary outcomes at 90 days and one year for mortality and medical complications. And they were specifically looking at VTE, MI, and pneumonia using those time periods. So overall, they were able to identify about 42,000 patients who met the inclusion criteria. And these patients had about a mean age of 80 years old with 70% 70% being women. And they looked at uh, maximum area under the curve to identify the threshold for early versus delayed hip fracture surgery. And they used 24 hours as that threshold. And an interesting thing before they underwent the process of matching, they found that about 34% of the patients underwent early surgery, whereas 60%, 66% underwent delayed surgery. And most of these patients were actually. Mo- more likely to be men with higher medical comorbidities. And they were treated at high volume centers uh, after transfer from another healthcare institution. But after they performed matching, each group contained about 14,000 patients.
1: Cool. i it, I I'm sorry. I, I just want to jump in there. And that kind of makes sense, right? If, if you're calculating how long it takes to get to someone for a surgery, if they're coming from another institution, they were where they've seen an emergency department, they're like, it's obviously going to be from their initial presentation until you get to them it's going to be a little bit delayed and so it kind of makes sense a lot lot of those different things and it's it's nice to see when these people who are matched or the people that are falling outside when when that makes sense and uh and kind of goes along with what you expect it's always like a really reassuring thing that we're looking at the right things and looking at them the right way sorry sorry to interrupt We'll, we'll, we'll keep we'll keep going
2: yeah, you're good. That's exactly. So, when they looked at the results, they put together this chart that you're able to see if you're following along with the slides, which is essentially just looking at the hours from arrival from the hospital to surgery in comparison to 30 day mortality. And with their mean time to surgery of about 28.8 hours, they found that there's really an inflection point at about 24 hours, where after that point, the risk of 30 day mortality really starts to increase. So that's the majority of what they found with these results. Nice. And then looking at the NICE table that they've included in this study, they found that in terms of secondary outcomes, there is an absolute risk difference at 30 days, uh, sorry, at 90 days and 365 days for mortality, pulmonary embolism heart attack, and pneumonia. Those were all statistically significant. But the thing that was interesting was the thing that was not significant at all three timeframes of 30 days, 90 days, and one year from surgery was deep vein thrombosis. So that was what they found was most interesting. And that lack of significance for DVT in comparison to pulmonary embolism may just be due to kind of misclassification from fat emboli. Since pulmonary and emboli are a little bit hard to differentiate in that case. So really, they just need some future research to delineate that better. (laughs) All right. So overall, in conclusion, what they found was that using a large kind of diverse and generalizable population, they were able to assess that time to surgery measured continuously in hours is a 24-hour threshold uh, prior to that increase in 30-day mortality and the other complications that we talked about. So really what they found that's needed in the future is to provide an opportunity for quality improvement as about two-thirds of the study population underwent delayed surgery. So really just trying to optimize patient outcomes by initiating surgery
1: Earlier. Nice. Yeah. Wow. So that I mean, it's a huge study. You did such a good job on breaking that down and really and really narrowed in on on the the time to surgery threshold. That's that's so important and striking. And I think what you highlighted there at the end is super important too. Is you know even the thresholds that we were using before the forty eight hours and the thirty six hours, people people or institutions have had a hard time meeting that. And so this is something that we need to continue to strive for and, and try to improve. But I'm going to actually click back a little bit to. Uh, to that graph that you had pulled up. That what's so cool about this study or what I thought was cool or interesting about the study is it does show us as it moves through, as the time points move through from zero to 120 hours from, from arrival to surgery, what the 30-day mortality rate is. And we have that up here. And then in the, stu- in the study, they have it for 30 days. They have it for 9- 90 days. They have it for, for 365 days. And so it's really cool to kind of see this trend carry out across 30, 90, uh, one year carries across also the complication rates. And so it's becomes, you know, pretty convincing by continuing to look at all this different stuff. And it's, it's really cool to, to see that consistency. And it's really, yeah. I don't know, I'm a, I'm a visual learner. So being able to see the, these graphs and that, the kind of smooth uh, increase in, in pattern, something like that, that is really striking. And so I definitely encourage you to, to pull up this study and take a look at those, uh, those graphs and see how it's conserved across all the different um, mortality at 30, 90, one well, year, as well as all the complications. So, so taking a look at this and knowing our limitations as a system, when talking to the patient, Bree, when you're talking with the family, when you, they, you've convinced them already, okay, you know, we want to go to surgery because we want to get her back moving. We're excited that every, like we have a, a, a multiple, team that's involved to really help maximize and work with, work with, with grandma before and, and after surgery, what are you going to tell them about, okay, so, so doc, when, when are we going to surgery?
2: Yeah. So we want to go to surgery as soon as it's safe for both the patient from their medical standpoint, as well as all of the different factors that are required in order to perform the surgery. So really, ideally, what we would tell the patient is that we would want to get to surgery within 24 to 48 hours, not just telling them that 24-hour set point just in case we don't quite need that. Um, we want to ensure that we're not putting any undue stress on the patient so just giving them that time frame of 24 to 48 hours that we'd like to get to surgery. But we want to ensure that the multidisciplinary team is in agreement that it's the right time for the patient to go to surgery in order to kind of optimize those medical and orthopedic issues that we're trying to.
1: That's right. Right. You want to you want to highlight, you know, the the, the realities of the situation is we want to get to exactly like you said. We want to get there as soon as it's safe. Right. We want to make sure that you're cleared and medically optimized. We want to make sure that the team is ready, the, uh, the OR is ready. We don't want to rush into a poorly performed surgery for a, you know a, a lack of a better term. Or we we want to be ready. We want to be ready to go. We want to have the team ready to go. We want the patient ready to go. And, and as you said, you know it, it's nice to give them a range. We don't want you know to, to you never can really promise anything because you don't know what's going to happen. You want to make sure that the, the patient is tracking along. That's what we're trying to do. And and you had mentioned it before when we were we were, we were talking is the importance of being an advocate for our patients right we you'll see uh, as a resident all of us will see as a resident and then as as attendings sometimes there's things that hold us back from patient care that are more administrative and as much as we can being advocates in cases like this where we can try to we were trying to push for this 24-hour time point you know talking with our our maternal medicine colleagues like hey is this test that you want to get is it a nice to have or a have to have is it talking with the OR front desk? Hey, you know, we need to make sure we we have coverage going a little bit late in this room to make sure that we're getting them today instead of tomorrow. So communication up and down and sideways in order to help push forward the care for these patients is is huge. But also understanding, you know, the realities of the of, of every of where we work and, and knowing what we can control and can't control working, make sure that the patient understands uh, what we're trying to do and how we're trying to do it. That's that's great. All right. All right, Nick, let's go ahead and finish it off. Last last paper right here. All right, sounds good. This is a paper
3: in JPJS published in 2008. Early operation on patients with a hip fracture improved the ability to return to independent living. We're going to drive home some points like we already have about timing, but then an important aspect on this paper is the in- return to independent living aspect, which, which we'll get into here in a second. So as we make clear hip fractures, some of the most common orthopedic injuries, we see mortality rates as high as 30% at one year. And like that chart that uh, Bree had shown on the last slide, that mortality rates continue to increase as time passes. 30 day mortality rate following surgery reported that 9%, there's some variability in that. And like we've been talking about for the last uh, couple of minutes, there's a little bit of controversy at timing to hip fractures and, and when is the perfect time and, and what are the variables? Uh, in regards to when we fix them. So this study the stage a little bit. This paper, this review paper by Khan et al, 2009, he reviewed 52 studies, almost 300,000 patients. These studies produced a little bit of conflicting results regarding mortality and morbidity, whether being increased or affected by delaying surgery. None of the studies in his uh, review article reported any adverse outcomes for early surgery, but is an important point so he never maybe be too early. In conclusion, so early surgery within 48 hours reduces hospital stay and may reduce complications. So this paper also is gonna divide up a little bit different variables you know, 24, 36, 48 hours compared to people who have surgery at a later date. This is a one-year prospective study, 850 patients to level two study. So some of the outcomes that were measured for the ability to return to independent living, which is a, the real important point here uh, with, with this study risk for development of pressure ulcers, and length of hospital stay and mortality rate. So some of the results, so surgery after 36 and 48 hour groups, after admission, were less likely to return to independent living within four months. That's really the point that this paper wants to drive home. the longer we wait, there's a, increased chance that the person will not return to independent living at the full month mark. And there is no significant difference with the use of the 24 hour limit. So we have a little chart at the bottom there that uh, talks about this a little bit more, and that's just going to reinforce return to independent living, decrease the longer that wait, looking at pressure ulcers, the incidence of pressure ulcers in the groups that had operation later was increased at all three cutoffs. So the longer we wait, more incidence of pressure ulcers, the odds ratio, For the 24, 36, and 48 hour group, about two for the 24 hour group, about three and a half for the 36 hour group, 4.3 for the 48 hour group. Longer we wait, more chance of, but for ulcers. So, like the hospitalization was also a variable this study looked at. It's increased in the groups that had the later operation. The median was 14 days compared to 18 days for the 24 hour group, 15 days compared to 19 days for the 36 hour group. 15 days compared to 21 days with the 48 hour group and later respectively the importance of surgical timing remains significant even after adjusting for co-founders so that is something that the, uh, the authors of this paper evaluated so the big takeaways here early versus late fixation of hip fractures associated with improved ability to return to independent living reduced risk for pressure ulcers and a shortened possible stay you could say one of the challenges of this study is the length is, is one year maybe it could have been longer looked at these variables for a bit of a longer time but that was the only thing I could identify that that may have been possible downside
1: yeah but sure thing oh god yeah no 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 yeah it didn't like right there's always limitations as far as like it being the various maybe it's a level two it's not evident in space or it's not a, a oh my gosh I'm blanking on it oh my gosh a randomized controlled study like which we right. can't do with, with with these things which is totally fine uh, my question for you Nick is is uh so you know grandma's there with with her family and you know they're like okay you've talked with us you know your your whole team's on board we're going to be working with a bunch of people she's ready to work really hard with physical therapy and get moving as soon as she's done you're going to take her to surgery and basically as soon as it's it's safe and hopefully within 24 to 48 hours so it sounds like as long as you guys get to her with 24 to 48 hours like she's going to be great is is that is that right she's going to be able to go back home right So. We're gonna say, we, we hope that's the case, but we certainly can't guarantee it. You know,
3: the evidence that we've been talking about you know, for this whole conversation we've had today would suggest that the earlier we do it, the, the better they're gonna do. And if we sit on it for a week, that's certainly not gonna do us any favors, but there's a chance that uh, they don't return to independent living at all, and there's a chance that they do. The better we the sooner we're able to you know decide on surgery, get things prepped, get things medically optimized, get things squared away that chance uh, is hopefully better that they can go back to independent living but it's, it's certainly no guarantee. It's not a guarantee for anybody. Yeah, for
1: sure, right? And like we're talking about odds ratios in this paper, we're taking we're talking about things like there's a better likelihood that they get back to independent living, but there certainly is still a, a risk that they that they don't get back to independent living or they they lose a degree of mobility and freedom after a hip fracture. And that's exactly right. Like we we're, we're looking at all these things to help improve our chances, improve our chance, but there still is a risk. Like we talk about even operative treatment, there's a risk of mortality at one year. There's uh, still a risk of mortality at 30 days. There's still a risk of loss of independence, and loss of mobility. And so I'll kind of, yeah, yeah. And so I'll kind of go here in conclusion. It's kind of from my experience, right? I'm still a, a third year resident. I'm still learning, but from my time on consults and talking with my my chiefs, my senior residents, my attendings, and looking at these papers, kind of was. You know, kind of develop a, a little bit of a, a spiel that, that we give patients when they come in talking about hip fractures. I kind of wanted to, to run through that with, with you guys, or just kind of to put it out there for you. I always talk about coming in and talk with a patient, you know, like you, you build the rapport, you talk with them, figure out what's going on, make sure that you, you figure out what their questions are. And then when you're getting ready to kind of explain what's going on, I always kind of go into, Hey, you know, whenever we're talking about hip fractures, it's usually it's not just the only thing that's going on. You usually have some different comorbidities and the, the fact that you fell and the fact that you, you had a fracture can be a, a sign also of just kind of your, your overlying medical status, your overlying health. It can be a, an indication of, of fragility or, or, or the natural aging process. It can kind, of be a sign of, can kind of be looked at or it can often be a sign of uh, moving towards the end of life process. And how much I emphasize that kind of depends on their comorbidities and their overall, you know, like are they sick, not sick? I talk with them, you know, we do know from our different papers and our different research, But you know, this is a very common injury. We're able to get a lot of information. We know that taking a look at if there's a a definite benefit to to surgery and trying to get you back to to activity. But even with that, we know that there is a certain risk because once again, this is kind of a a sign of your underlying medical status. We say up to a third of patients, even with surgery at one year, can, can actually, there can be a mortality risk or could actually could die not not typically from there it's not not coming from the the hip fracture but once again all those different comorbidities and the complications of getting up and getting moving around I talk with them a little bit about you know the importance of motion and and being upright walking activity in you know continued health and and strength and then I say so a really important thing is going to be you know we can do the surgery and help get you moving again but a really important thing is going to be working with physical therapy pushing through and, and getting active and getting mobile again and so it's it's really going to be coming from you and your activity and your motivation to, to get moving again so try to really motivate them Uh, from that point of view and then I kind of go into a a little bit of talking about you know we talked about a third of folks will will unfortunately pass away within a a year uh, uh, about and once again you know depending on your activity level and what you're able to do afterwards are those are the things you can control and work towards but we do also see you know a third of folks are are able to get back to their normal baseline moving around a third of folks might have to where they didn't have to use a cane will have to start using a cane or if they're using a cane they might use a walker if they're using a walker they might start using a, uh, a wheelchair and that could have impacts on their ability to to live alone or versus needing open an assisted living facility and that's something that will continue to work with physical therapy you might need a, a short stay in an assisted living or physical therapy focused facility with the, of course the goal of going home but a lot of that's determined on your ability to get back to motion and that's the best thing that we can do for you is getting you back moving you back moving as soon as possible and we're going to be working with your team too to do that as soon as it's safe for you and that's that's kind of the it's kind of the, the whole the whole spiel well guys good job another one done another one down we've talked about the kind of the background of fractures are looking forward to jumping in and and doing a little bit more of the specific fracture care doing the, the more uh the more
0: uh surgical side of things here coming up in the next couple episodes <laughs> Hello, everybody. Thank you all for listening to that episode on hip fractures and our kind of our trauma citation classics team taking it away. They really did a great job with that episode. So, if you liked it, please go and leave a review. Let us know how much you enjoyed it. Leave a like on all our social media and leave a thumbs up just, just tell your friends, just thumbs them up and say, Hey, that was a great episode. (laughs) All right. Until next time, everyone has a story, different needs, wants, and goals and how to attain them. Your story determines your solution. Whatever your situation and story locum tenants should be a part of the conversation. How do you find out if locum tenants is a good option for you? Go to an unbiased, informative source like LocumStory.com. You'll learn all the ins and outs of locums details on travel and housing, assignment, coordination, tax information, and more. You'll also hear firsthand stories from Locum's physicians from all walks of life so you get a bigger picture of the diverse options. Get a comprehensive view of Locum's and decide if it's right for you at locumstory.com.